Hello, you're listening to The Elegant Mind, broadcast on KAPY Valley Radio 104.9, serving the Snoqualmie Valley and the communities of Duval, Carnation, and Redmond Ridge. My name is Mark Winwood, and I am your host. Today we're going to be talking about a fundamental teaching that came out of the Buddhist canon, the wisdom teachings in particular. This one is known as the Diamond Sutra, or in longhand, the perfection of wisdom that cuts like a diamond sutra, and it is one of Buddhism's most significant texts. It forms part of the Prajnaparamita, or the perfection of wisdom literature, which contained 38 texts in all, composed in India somewhere between 100 BCE and 800 CE. That's before Common Era and Common Era. These scriptures are said to go back to the teachings the Buddha delivered at a place in northeastern India called the Vulture Peak near the city of Rajgir. The Vulture Peak is still there. The city of Rajgir is still there as well and is a popular tourist destination for those on the the pilgrimage, the Buddha pilgrimage as it's known, which visits a series of locations significant to Siddhartha's life, where he was born, where he achieved enlightenment, where he gave his first teaching and delivered his wisdom teachings at the top of this mountain known as the Vulture's Peak because from a particular angle it looks like the head of a vulture from a distance and then where he passed away. The Diamond Sutra has a particular interest, kind of an ironic interest, in the history of printing. The Diamond Sutra has special prominence as the earliest dated printed work that has been found. I remember growing up and hearing that the Gutenberg Bible was the very first printed work the Gutenberg Bible, sometime, I believe, in the 15th century. Well, the Diamond Sutra was discovered in a cave in uh, northern China, and it was a, it's a printed work. It was block printed. This is how printing was done back in those days, where wood blocks were carved, and then ink was made through crushing of, of substances, and then the pages were, were printed from the wood block that had been soaked in the ink. Well, this Diamond Sutra was dated. And when the scholars got to it and analyzed the date, translated the date to see how that would correspond to our calendar, the Diamond Sutra was dated the 11th of May in the year 868, which by centuries predates the Gutenberg Bible. So this is the oldest printed work ever discovered on this planet, the Diamond Sutra. It's one of the most important sutras in Buddhism, and over the years since its discovery, people have been studying it, reciting it in ritual assemblies and daily practices. It's believed many people have experienced realizations and similar benefits by following the teachings of the sutra. The sutra itself is a uh, record of a dialogue between Siddhartha, the Buddha, and one of his great disciples known as Subhuti. This dialogue took place, it said, in front of 1,250 of the Buddha's followers on this mountaintop in northern India. Subhuti is known throughout the literature as um, best understanding 
the true meaning of what we refer to as emptiness or ultimate wisdom. After a day collecting alms in the city of Sravasti, the Buddha retires to a garden. With his monks at his side, Subhuti approaches and sits down, and so the dialogue begins. I am going to share with you just a couple of the verses from the Diamond Sutra. Due to time limitations, it's, it's a teaching. It's not that long a sutra, but it is chock full. It's chock full of, of wisdom and perspectives. And I'm going to share just two of the verses with you and then discuss those verses and the ideas that they are communicating. So the Diamond Sutra begins as such. This is what I have heard. Once the Buddha was staying at Anathapandika's retreat in the Jetta Grove near the city of Sravasti with a gathering of 1,250 monks. After dressing and making his begging rounds in the city and eating his one meal, he sat with the monks. The monk Subhuti paid his respects to the Buddha and asked a question. What should one who wants to travel the Bodhisattva path keep in mind? And the Buddha answered, a Bodhisattva should keep this in mind. All creatures, whether they are born from the womb or hatched from the egg, whether they transform like butterflies or arise miraculously, whether they have a body or are purely spirits, whether they are capable of thought or not capable of thought, all of these I vow to help enter nirvana before I rest there myself. But keep in mind, Sabuti, that in reality there is no such thing as an I who helps, and no such thing as an other whom I help. A bodhisattva who does not recognize this reality is no true bodhisattva. So what's being said here? What is the Buddha? What is Siddhartha saying? It's, uh, it's very fundamentally core to the Buddhist teachings. And that is the equanimity, equalization, and interdependence of all beings. Humans, even though we do share in a precious human rebirth and have tremendous faculties as being a human being that other creatures don't, we have a dual hemispheric brain, we have the ability to talk, we have, we have digits, we have thumbs on our hands, we, can, we have long lifespans, we have incredible opportunities, incredible toolbox of, of qualities and facilities that others don't. But Buddhism does not specify that humans are superior, that the practices, the teachings are only for human beings or for the benefit of human beings, but rather for the benefit of all beings. Again, hear these words. All creatures, whether they are born from the womb or hatched from the egg, whether they transform like butterflies or arise miraculously, whether they have a body or are purely spirits, whether they are capable of thought or not capable of thought, all of these I vow to help enter nirvana before I rest there myself. All creatures, the elegance of the Buddhist teachings, or one of the, the aspects of elegance of the Buddhist teachings, 
is that we don't discriminate. We try not to discriminate. We try not to hold ourselves superior or inferior, more important than anything or anyone or any other creature. All creatures have mind. All creatures are sentient. All creatures suffer. All creatures, we're all in this together. And the teachings come out of the Diamond Sutra and other teachings as well dispute the notion that is popular among the Judeo-Christian ideas and perspectives that humans have dominion. They have a dominion over animals, over other creatures, that humans are special. And the other creatures on this planet are here to serve us, are here to do our bidding, are here to entertain us, or whatever, however we decide to relate to them. But Buddhism is different. Buddhism is different. We're all in this together. And we empathize we sympathize and we act on the bodhisattva path, which is the path toward full awakening. We act ideally instinctively, although sometimes it takes some thinking, it takes some awareness, it takes some mindfulness, but we act naturally and instinctively to benefit all beings equally, equally. So that's a core teaching here in the, the Diamond Sutra. And then there was... Um, after that notion of helping all beings to achieve nirvana, nirvana being freedom from suffering, to achieve nirvana before I rest in nirvana myself, there was the reminder where he says, but keep in mind, Sabuti, that in reality there is no such thing as an I who helps and no such thing as an other whom I help. A bodhisattva who does not recognize this reality is no true bodhisattva. So this refers to the wisdom, the wisdom of Buddhism, the wisdom of non-discrimination. We'll talk more about that in the weeks to come. What we refer to as emptiness, emptiness of an inherent self, emptiness of permanence, emptiness of limitation, emptiness of discrimination that arises when everything is perceived as self and other of me and you rather than us, us together, we rather than me, us rather than me and you, the emptiness of discrimination. This is where the Buddhist teachings go. This is the understanding, which then becomes an experiential understanding, an experiential knowledge, and really begins to change the way we relate. We relate to ourselves. We relate ourselves to others. We relate others to ourselves. The wisdom of the Buddhist teachings, the elegance, the absolute elegance of living a life each moment, looking out for others, responsibility, caring, empathy, sympathy, giving, generosity, patience, all of these states arise when we just begin to shift our focus just a little bit from me to we, me to we. So the Diamond Sutra talks about that specifically, right up near the very top, that this is the way we begin to see things. This is the way we see ourselves in relation to others, non-discriminatory, non-judgmental, non-competitive, non-me versus you. So once again, this is Mark Winwood bringing you The Elegant Mind, Valley 104.9, 
serving the lower Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State and streamed on the internet at www.valley1049.org. A little later in the program, we're going to have some music, some Bobby Vega music, as we do each week. And I will share with you the second verse that I'd like to bring forth from the Diamond Sutra. But first, I'd just like to talk about this teaching and diamonds and the significance of this being called the Diamond Sutra. I'd like to share some ideas with you. So as I said earlier, the Diamond Sutra is the oldest dated book in the world. It was printed rather than being written out by hand. And the British Museum in London has a copy, has the copy, the discovered copy of the Diamond Sutra. Interestingly, they have it on display. There's this this one particular room that has these remarkable old texts. And the Diamond Sutra, the scroll on which the Diamond Sutra was printed, is on exhibit in the British Museum in London, right next to the Gutenberg Bible. It's quite a, uh, quite a sight. <laughs> to see these to see these works one next to the other. So again, this is a written record of a teaching that was given by the Buddha approximately 2,500 years ago. In the beginning, it was passed down by word of mouth, and then as writing developed, it was inscribed onto long palm leaves. These were uh, fronds of, of palm on which the words of the book were first scratched using a sharp rock and then charcoal dust was rubbed into the scratches left by the rock, and then those palm fronds were dried, and this became the very first writings. Uh, these loose palm leaves would be kept together in one of two ways. Sometimes a hole would be bored with an all through the middle of the stack of leaves and a string passed through to keep the pages together, and sometimes just cloths were wrapped around these pages to keep them, to keep them as one. The original Diamond Sutra was taught by the Buddha in the Sanskrit language, the ancient language of India, which is somewhere around 4,000 years old. We're not really quite sure. And then when the book reached Tibet about 1,000 years ago, it was translated into Tibetan and then carved into woodblocks and history went on. It is a significant text. If one travels into Mongolia, in particular Mongolia, which is a Tibetan Buddhist country in terms of the belief of most of the people who live there. Every family has a copy of the Diamond Sutra on their altar, and it is, it's traditional uh, for once each year for local monks to come and read the text out loud in order to impart the blessing of the wisdom. And this wisdom is not so easily won. This is a text that requires thought. It requires careful reading and then thinking about what one has read and allowing the imagination to expand into possibilities and then understandings and contemplations and so on. So this text, as I say, it, it contains a secret, with quotes around it, secret wisdom. But perhaps the most important word explaining how to best succeed in all these measures that this text puts forth is the word diamond. Diamonds represent in the ancient Tibetan ways a hidden potential of all things. The meaning or one of the meanings of emptiness is that things can go either way. Things can go in any direction. There's no thing itself about the object in and of itself. It all depends on how we perceive it. 
This is the hidden potential in things. And then there are the qualities of the diamond itself. First of all, pure diamond is about the closest thing to an absolutely clear physical substance. You know, if you look at a sliding door, glass door, usually it's not perfectly clear. There's often a, a tint, maybe a green tint to it. Whatever the tint is, it's, it represents the accumulated effect of just a tiny bit of impurities, iron impurities spread throughout the glass. And the thicker the glass gets, the more obvious these impurities become. But pure diamond is different. The nature of diamond is totally pure or clear. If there was a wall of diamond several feet wide, several feet wide between you and another person, and if no light were reflecting from its surface, you couldn't see the diamond at all. You couldn't see the diamond at all. The hidden potential for success or happiness that's found in the Diamond Sutra is just like this pane of diamond glass. It's all around us at all times. Every person and object around us contains this potential. To begin to harness this potential puts you there. The irony of our lives is that even though this potential imbues every person and thing around us, it's invisible to us. We just can't see it. So one of the purposes then of the Diamond Sutra is to teach us how to see this potential. Diamond is also significant in another way. It is very simply the hardest thing in the universe to our knowledge. Nothing that exists can scratch a diamond except another diamond. I've heard that a diamond is three times harder than the next hardest mineral, which is ruby. And diamonds themselves can only scratch other diamonds when the diamond's being scratched has a soft direction. These soft directions are what the diamond cutters use when they cut facets. So why is it? Why is it significant that a diamond is the hardest material in the universe? Just think about the idea of something which is the most anything, the tallest, the shortest, the longest, the biggest. The hidden potential that we've talked about is something which is truly absolute in a way that no physical thing can be. It's the highest nature a thing can have. It is the absolute truth of every person and object. And so the diamond is significant in a second way as a metaphor for that one thing which is truly absolute. And then, interestingly enough, every diamond everywhere is made of the same simple carbon bounded together in the same atomic structure. This means that every tiny sliver of diamond down to a molecular level is exactly the same internally as every other piece of diamond. So. You can have a diamond that comes out of a mine in South Africa, and you can have a diamond that comes out of somewhere in South America, different sides of the globe. And if those diamonds, if each of those diamonds are perfectly pure, brilliant and flawless, perfectly pure, you cannot tell them apart. They look as though they come from the same thing, the same place. It is impossible to tell them apart. And that is a metaphor for us, human beings, animals, we are all down very, very deep beyond our genes, beyond our histories, beyond our personalities. At the core of our mind, we are all the same. We are identical. We have absolute perfection sitting on our mind. We refer to this as bodhicitta or tathagatagarbha, Buddha nature. 
every sentient mind at its core is identical to every other sentient mind at its core. This is one of the teachings of the Diamond Sutra, just by the title itself, the Diamond Sutra. You know, diamonds are perfectly clear. They're almost invisible. And the hidden potential of everything around us, the sameness of everything around us, is just as hard to see. Diamonds come very, very close to being something which is absolute. Again, the hardest thing there is. Absolute perfection, the hardest thing there is. And the hidden potential in things, in people, in you, in people you know, the people you work with, your family members, your friends, your neighbors, the people in the community, the people on the planet, as well as all the animals and all the insects and all the fish and all the birds on the planet, all all have this hidden potential, just like a diamond, which is pure and absolute truth. Every sliver of diamond that exists anywhere in the universe is exactly the same stuff as every other one, pure 100% diamond. And it's true of the hidden potential of things too, that every instance of the potential is just as pure, just as absolute as every other instance. So how do we see this? How do we become aware of this? Well, the first way to see this absolute nature is by reading explanations about it, just like the Diamond Sutra and many other teachings, and not just Buddhist teachings. There's lots and lots of writings and writers that come to mind that explore this idea, this notion. So we can sit and see this reality by reading about it and then sitting and thinking hard about the explanation that we've read until we understand and begin to use the potential of what we have come to understand. And then there is, by the Buddhist methods, the second way, which is to go into a deep state of meditation and see this potential directly in your mind's eye. Number two is more powerful. <laughs> it's more effective. But number one works fine as well. Read, think, contemplate, understand, and experience. So, okay, this is Mark Winwood, and it's time for some music. Each week, as you know, if you've been listening to this program, I share with you the music of Bobby Vega. Bobby Vega, V-E-G-A, is a San Francisco Bay Area musician. He's a bass player, he's a composer, he's a teacher, and he's a friend. He's been playing music. Gosh, I guess Bobby is probably in his mid-50s now, and he's been playing music ever since he was a kid. He told me a story once how the very, very first live concert he ever played was in San Francisco. It's where he grew up, and he played bass with Bo Diddley at some theater in San Francisco. He was just a kid, and when the concert was over, <laughs> it's a funny story, when the concert was over, uh, Bo came over to him and gave him a roll of money, you know, it was a rolled up, but, you know, it was a fairly substantial roll of money. Bobby couldn't believe it, that he was being paid so much money to play bass with Bo Diddley, you know. Bo Diddley was a big name. So Bobby put it in his pocket, and when he left the theater, he reached in and pulled it out, and there was a dollar bill, and on the rolled up, you know, with the dollar bill on the outside was paper, <laughs> just paper. So he got paid a dollar for his very first gig. I guess it was sometime in the 60s back in San Francisco playing bass for Bo Diddley. But Bobby has played with numerous musicians who have come through San Francisco. And as you know, so much of 
the music that many of us listen to over the years was sourced in the Bay Area. So I'm going to play a cut that Bobby participated in. It was recorded in the studio in Sebastopol in 1998. And with it are some bandmates of his, Maddie Eckel on the flute and Martin Fierro playing tenor saxophone. Not sure who's on the drums. I'm not really sure who the guitar player is either. You know, these guys were always playing music, different ensembles, different collections. We'd get together. Studio E up in Sebastopol in California was a gathering place, and lots of great music was recorded there over the years that it was that it was open. But I'm going to play it for you. It's a little different. It, it's upbeat. It's jazzy. It will. Uh, it might get you hopping a little bit, which is wonderful. It's this is Diamond Sutra Day. It's a great day to be hopping. And at the conclusion of the music, we're going to go into the second verse that I'd like to share with you. It is a famous verse, and it talks about how to view everything being impermanent. And as one thing leads to another, everything leads to something else. Everything is impermanent. Everything is in movement. Everything is occurring. It is a wonderful teaching. So enjoy the music, and I will see you on the other side. Again, this is Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. Community FM Radio at 104.9 and streamed on the internet, www.valley1049.org.
Okay, we're back. Mark Winwood with The Elegant Mind. So we have been reading a little bit and discussing the Diamond Sutra, the perfection of wisdom teaching known as the Diamond Sutra. Again, remember, a diamond is the hardest material, hardest natural material, can cut through anything. In this particular instance, this particular teaching, the Diamond Sutra is about the diamond that cuts through afflictions that cuts through ignorance, that cuts through illusion and delusion. It's the diamond that cuts through the causes of our suffering. It's the diamond that cuts through the causes of our limitations and our fears and our confusions. The Diamond Sutra, wonderful teaching. As I said earlier, it's a, a part of a large canon of the Mahayana, the early Mahayana, sutras that are known as the Prajnaparamita sutras, the perfection of wisdom. And in Tibetan Buddhism, the perfection of wisdom is the realization or direct experience of what's known as sunyata or emptiness. Emptiness. So this is part of the wisdom, part of the wisdom teachings, the Diamond Sutra. Earlier, we reviewed one of the verses in the Diamond Sutra that talks about the equanimity, the interconnection, the non-discrimination that those on the path to awakening, the elegance of awakening that those uh, embody. Well, I guess embody is the end result. First, it's learning about, considering, understanding, and engaging. And then we are able to begin to see ourselves and others in a very, very different light, a light of unity, a light of non-discrimination, a light of shared responsibility. Quite wonderful, beautiful, and very elegant. <laughs> Perhaps that is the description of the elegant mind, is the mind that is open, understanding, accepting, and responsible, responsible for the welfare of others in a non-discriminatory way. So the other verse that I would like to share with you is the verse that comes up at the very, very end in which the, the Buddha, Siddhartha, talks about impermanence and how one perceives impermanence. So what is, what is impermanence? You hear that word all the time. What are we referring to when we refer to impermanence? Well, by the teachings, there are two flavors of impermanence. There is subtle impermanence and gross impermanence. Gross impermanence, I think we all understand. Gross impermanence means that everything that exists one day will not. Everything dies. Everything falls apart. Things come to be. They progress. They age. They mature. They decay. They fall apart. Everyone dies. Everyone dies, impermanence, here one day and not here the next day. Nothing lasts, nothing lasts forever. Everything is in a constant flow of aging. And that's subtle impermanence, is that constant flow of aging, the constant change, the constant, constant turbulence. Nothing stays the same for just even a second, everything's changing, everything's aging, things are coming together and falling apart. It's one of the things that meditation teaches us right at the very, very beginning 
when we're able to sit quietly and watch our mind and watch how thoughts arise and abide and pass over and over, a constant stream. Nothing stays. Nothing stays for even a moment. Everything's changing. And that's really the teaching of subtle impermanence, is that nothing exists. Everything occurs. Think about the difference between existing, being, existing, and occurring. Everything occurs. Everything occurs. And that's really what this verse that I'm going to share with you talks about, this, this perspective, this understanding that everything occurs. And why it's significant, why it's important, is because if we can begin to understand and engage in that perspective, how everything is in a constant state of flux or occurrence, perhaps we begin not to grasp so tightly at trying to keep things the way they are, at trying to, for things not to change, or perhaps for trying to have things change the way we'd like them to change when they're going to change the way they need to change because everything is comprised or composed of lots and lots of different things just coming together and merging and working together and evolving. So we don't really have a whole lot of control over how things change. We're caught up in that and we struggle with that. It's one of the major causes of our discomfort of our what the buddha referred to as dukkha or suffering is that everything is changing everything is evolving and we have very little control over that and we certainly can't stop it so it's this aspect of impermanence that the buddha explains to sabuti absolutely beautifully beautiful articulation and metaphor so I'm going to read that for you and then discuss the metaphors that are used to explain the different qualities of impermanence. So the Buddha in the Diamond Sutra has talked about a lot of different things. There's a lot of different aspects. And by the way, if anybody here who's listening would like a copy of the Diamond Sutra, I'd be happy to send it to you. I have a beautifully translated copy of the Diamond Sutra. Just send me an email at theelegantmind at valley1049.org. Theelegantmind at valley1049.org. Request a copy of the Diamond Sutra. I'll get that and I will email that off to you if you'd like to read the text in its entirety. Actually, I have a copy of the text that is somewhat abridged, so I'd be happy to share that with you. So. As I said, Siddhartha has gone through this, this teaching, and Subhuti gets it. And so I'm just going to read from the copy of the text that I have. Subhuti suddenly had a full awareness of the meaning of the teaching and was moved to tears. Buddha, thank you for this teaching. Anyone who hears it and understands it with a pure mind will be moved by it. Even hundreds of years into the future, its clarity will be appreciated. And then Siddhartha replies, Subhuti, if someone gave away enough treasure to fill a universe, he would still not gain as much merit as someone who manages to understand and pass on a few lines of this teaching. So, what should be on one's mind as one begins the Bodhisattva journey? Like a star, a cataract, a butter lamp? an illusion, a drop of dew, a water bubble. 
Like a dream, a bolt of lightning, a cloud, view all compounded phenomena in this way. Subhuti and the rest of the monks were filled with joy at hearing the Buddha's sermon. So we're going to discuss that metaphor. Like a star, a cataract, a butter lamp, an illusion, a drop of dew, a water bubble, like a dream, a bolt of lightning, a cloud, view all compounded phenomena in this way. So what is it that Siddhartha is saying here? Well, let's start with the last line where he says, view all compounded phenomena in this way. What is compounded phenomena? What does that mean, compounded phenomena? Well, compounded phenomena is everything. Anything that you can point your finger at, anything that has a label, any feeling, any thought, any idea, any material substance, any phenomena, any this or that or thus, anything is a compounded phenomena in that it arises due to causes and conditions. Nothing arises completely and totally all by itself without any pieces or parts or aspects, without any timing, without any merging, without any influence of other factors, everything, anything that you can say that or it, anything, anything that's experienced, anything, everything is a compounded phenomenon. So Siddhartha says, view everything in these ways, this metaphor. So let's look at the metaphor piece by piece. He says, like a star, one who's on the bodhisattva path, path to awakening, the path to full happiness, complete happiness, joy, fearlessness, confidence, peace, wisdom, energy, etc. Like a star. View all compounded phenomena like a star. So what is, what is a star? When we look up in the sky at night and we look at stars, are we seeing those, those stars the way they truly exist? Or are we seeing kind of a representation, a little twinkle in the sky? Are we really seeing the star for what it is, a sun full of gas and incredible heat, and etc.? Or are we seeing a representation of that? Well, he's saying, view everything like that. You're not really seeing how things are comprised or what they're composed of. You're not seeing things as they truly exist. You're seeing them through your own perspective, just like you look up at the sky and you're only able to see a star. And also, by the way, the stars are in the sky during the day as well, but you can't see them. You can only see them at night. So this is also part of that metaphor that anything that we encounter, sometimes we see it, sometimes we don't, sometimes it's available to us, sometimes it's not. Again, this is all based on our own perspectives or our own compounded phenomena that's taking place. So we see everything like a star. And then he says a cataract. And what is a cataract? Well, we have a cataract in our eye and our eyes are kind of blocked by that cataract in a way, you know, or even particles of dust. But in this particular instance, it's a cataract. So the thing that you're 
trying to look at then doesn't look the way it really is. Rather, you we're seeing it in some other way. Fuzzy, I guess, or cloudy. I don't have cataracts, so I'm not exactly sure what that experience is, but but we're seeing it cloudy, not the way it is. And it's just the same with the eye of the mind when it's blocked by the problem of ignorance. We're just not seeing things as they truly exist in clarity. We're seeing things as though we're uh, seeing them through a cataract. So again, that's another way of perceiving, understanding how we perceive that can perhaps begin to limit or lessen our grasping and our attachment because we're not really seeing it the way it truly is. And then he says a butter lamp. See everything like a butter lamp. If you've ever seen a butter lamp burning, the flame is, it kind of flickers. It blows out very easily. It's very temporary and it gets bright and it and it and it dims and it gets bright and it dims and as the breeze blows it's very affected by that so siddhartha is saying see everything in that way as well here now and it may not be here it's at times it's very bright at times it's dim there is no reliability in the butter lamp there is no consistency in the butter lamp there's nothing dependable about the the flame of a butter lamp he says see things in this way to understand this is how they are truly existing and then he says an illusion see things like an illusion and the metaphor that i think of as an illusion is when we go to a movie theater and we're sitting there and it's a you know it's a good film it's an exciting film and we're watching and we're kind of sucked into that feeling emotions and we're rooting for the good guys or we're rooting against the bad guys we're hoping that the girl gets the guy the guy gets the girl whatever the plot of that movie is along with the sound and the and the visuals we're very sucked into that movie at that moment we're in there we're feeling it it's affecting it's affecting our, our mind it's affecting perhaps you know our blood is racing a little bit whatever it might be but what what's really happening we're sitting in a dark room and we're watching light on a screen and listening to noise it's an illusion that we're what that we're participating in it is not real it's an illusion and Siddhartha says see everything like this you're not truly seeing perceiving it as it is you're in the illusion of it and you're reacting to the illusion of it and it's not real and it can't possibly provide any kind of true satisfaction a drop of dew is lovely if we see dew in the morning and what happens a beautiful beautiful sensitive very fragile drop of dew on the, on a blade of grass and what happens as soon as the sun comes up pump that drop of dew is gone or it drops down, it evaporates, or it falls, and it's gone. It is there for the moment it had been created recently due to the causes and conditions of the evening. And when the sun comes up, that drop of dew is gone. See everything like this, like a drop of dew. Beautiful, existent, but not going to be there for very long. This is a kind of a central theme of impermanence that's actually referenced in some of the other metaphors here as well. A water bubble is very, very similar. If you've ever sat alongside a stream and watched the bubbles, the water bubbles as they flow, you know, they just kind of emerge from the stream 
and they float along the top of the water and then poof they're gone and you don't know when they're going to be gone you know they're not going to last they're beautiful and they return from where they came in effect the water bubble fragile beautiful about to burst at every moment so we don't attach to the water bubble we don't feel sad when the water bubble has uh, has burst we understand it is transitory, it is impermanent, and Siddhartha says, see everything in this way, a water bubble. Like a dream. You know, when you're dreaming at night, the dreams are real. You know, you breathe a little a little heavier. If it's a nightmare, you, you toss and you turn a little bit. It's very, very real. You're, you're feeling the effects of what is going through your mind in the dream. And then you wake up and you go, oh my gosh, I'm so glad that was only a dream. Or you say, wow, I want to go back to that dream, whatever it was. But it's only a dream. It's, it's real in the mind at the time, but it's not real. It's experienced in the mind. And Siddhartha is saying everything is like that, everything. There's a lot of Buddhist teachings that talk about this, about how everything that we experience is our perceptions, our perspectives, our perceptions, our experiences, all within the mind, all within the mind. Therefore, we try to keep our mind as clear and as calm and as brilliant as possible in order to experience as realistically and as beautifully and powerfully as we possibly can. So, like a dream. And then there's a bolt of lightning. And a bolt of lightning is very interesting because what happens, I think of a bolt of lightning at night where we're in darkness. And then all of a sudden, unexpectedly, kaboom, a bolt of lightning. Everything lights up. We see everything around us. And then it's gone. The lightning's gone. Everything's back in darkness. But we've seen at that moment, that bolt of lightning, that impermanent, transient bolt of lightning has illuminated everything for us. We see it all at that moment and then it's gone and Siddhartha says that this is how all compounded phenomena are there for a moment perhaps unexpectedly and we experience them and they affect everything that that we're seeing at the moment and then they're gone see everything all compounded phenomena like a bolt of lightning and then a cloud this one's my favorite see everything like a cloud and you know Thich Nhat Hanh used to talk a lot about this the idea of seeing everything like a cloud, if you look up in the sky, and here in uh, Washington State, we have lots of clouds, and we all know what the clouds mean. The clouds mean rain, drizzle, mist, happens, you know, periodically and intensively in the winter months. But take it a little bit further. When you see a cloud, what you're looking at is the precursor or the cause of rain. And the rain is the cause, once it enters into the soil into the ground it's the cause of everything growing around us the raindrops potentially are the source of food the raindrops are potentially what the trees need to grow and then at some point become paper or become products so when you look at a cloud you're certainly seeing that but the cloud is the precursor. It's the condition for much to follow it. It is fertile. A cloud is fertile for what it contains and what will happen as a result of that cloud. And everything is like that. Everything that we encounter is a precursor. It's a, it's a condition. It's, it's a, 
It's a participant in what is to follow. And certainly, again, in the meditation practice, when we watch how one thought links to another, links to another, links to another, we see that in full practice. So everything is like this. Everything has the qualities of a star, a cataract, a butter lamp, an illusion, a drop of dew, a water bubble, a dream, a bolt of lightning, or a cloud. Everything See, all compounded phenomena in this way, it is a profound teaching. And if one really thinks about this, considers it, and begins to integrate this perspective of impermanence into our lives, into how we relate to everything, there's big changes that come about. And perhaps the first of those big changes is we just stop being <laughs> such a lunatic. We stop needing and wanting and I must have this at this moment because that's what I need to make me happy. I must have the red Porsche. I must have the whatever, <laughs> whatever it is. We have a whole list of things that we must have because we feel they have the quality to make us happy, but they don't have the quality to make make us happy because they're changing all the time and we're changing and everything is changing and there's no one thing that doesn't change and there's no one thing that provides any type of consistent anything. So this is the, the Diamond Sutra, the wisdom. This is wisdom, the wisdom teaching on impermanence on compounded phenomena. This is what should be, Siddhartha says, on one's mind as one begins the Bodhisattva journey. So there you go, the Diamond Sutra. This is Mark Winwood. It's a pleasure to share this teaching with you again. If anyone would like a copy of this teaching, the Diamond Sutra, an email to the elegant mind at value1049.org. I'll get that off to you. It'll come as a PDF file. You can open it on your computer, on your smartphone. It's a, it's a wonderful, it's a wisdom teaching, and it's accessible to all of us, regardless of how wise or, un or unwise we might be. So thank you so much. That brings us to the end of this program, The Elegant Mind, broadcast on 104.9 FM in the Snoqualmie Valley of Washington State, serving the communities of Duval, Redmond Ridge, and Carnation. We will be back in weeks to come with more Tibetan mind science, Tibetan Buddhism, Tibetan life science. You can call it whatever you want to call it. It's impermanent. <laughs> whatever you call it, it's going to change anyway, as your perspectives of it change as well. So thank you so much for tuning in. Hope you enjoyed the music and we'll see you down the road. Thank you so very much. Mm -hmm.